0: Hello, and welcome to the Coffee and Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anne Wand. We have the pleasure today of listening to Dr. Helen Cornish, who will be talking to us today about magical encounters, other worlds, and uncanniness around Cornwall's Museum of Witchcraft and Magic. But before we begin, if you haven't listened to Helen's talk on the history of modern-day witchcraft, then I highly suggest you listen to episode 29 before we begin. And if you want to follow Helen's visuals to accompany this episode, Head to our Patreon page where you can see our live video recording there. Otherwise, rather than ask what drink you were having for the show, Helen, would you like to start?
1: I would. Thank you very much, Anne, for inviting me on to talk a little bit more about my research after our fantastic conversation earlier. Um, hi, everyone. Really good that you're here. Um, the first thing oh, I'm going to do is share my screen. That's always a good thing. And I was going to well, say, you're going to
0: provide like so those that are listening, uh, if you're listening on SoundCloud or YouTube, um, Helen's yeah. going to provide some, you know, descriptors as well. So if you need to visualize it in your mind's eye, you'll be able to
1: do that. Absolutely. But there's just a few photographs. Really. But you should definitely go on Patreon.
0: Long. I'm just going to throw that in there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So hi, hi again, everyone. And thanks, Anne. So the first thing I'd like to do is to tell you about some reflections from my anthropological fieldwork about what it felt like to stand at the foot of this waterfall pictured here. This is St. Necton's Glen. It's an 18-metre waterfall that plunges down from the Cornish cliffs into this natural stone basin. It's called a Keeve, high up behind the craggy coastline of North Cornwall. It's on the western tip of Britain. And at this time, I was walking with Sarah, a self-identified witch who I'd met at the nearby Museum of Witchcraft and Magic while I was researching how modern witches navigate history. And she was taking me on a a kind of a tour of um, some special sites in the vicinity. So, we climbed the footpath through the woods along the River Trevely up from Bosany. And she talked about her anticipation of revisiting the glen. She was full of advice on how to look, listen and feel in a place that she said was steeped in age-old spirits and histories of pilgrimage. It was late summer and the trees were heavy. The day was hot and humid and it was a steep climb. We paid our entry fee at the top and followed the path through the gate and down the steep steps. Sarah kind of paused and took a deep breath and said this was a rich place and it was shaded, it was cool, the cold air emanated off the waterfall. It was refreshing, but somehow it did seem a little bit out of place after our hot walk. We stood as we climbed down at the at the foot um, in the shade, bare feet in the river, and we looked up at this churning waterfall. And she said the spirit of place was palpable. She could feel it in this really thick, soupy atmosphere. She could feel it in her body, she said, how live this space was and told me to pay attention to all of my senses. So what I could see, what I could taste, smell, hear, and that the land was full of spirits and the very rocks were alive. She said here, in places like this, the veils between the worlds are thin. So what I'd like to do in my short talk is to discuss the uncanny or rather experiences of uncanniness. Something that we usually think of as an effect, a feeling that um, disturbs the body, but invisible somehow. So we all know those kind of uncanniness um, feelings, the known and the familiar jolts out of place. You might have that unexpected prickle of the hair on the back of the neck, the feeling of being watched by unseen eyes or an odd sense of deja vu, a sudden kind of heightened awareness of the space around you maybe an inexplicable fear or the desire to flee. The philosopher Trigg describes this as a peculiar commingling of the familiar and the unfamiliar, which is compounded by the belief that spirits or ghosts are simultaneously alarming and untrue. So it's very confusing and frightening. What I want to talk about is how for some modern British witches, those who have a view of the world as inherently animated This feeling of uncanniness is something to be anticipated rather than feared a marker that opportunities for otherworldly encounters may be close by to wait rather than to bolt, to watch, to listen, see what's happening in your peripheral vision. And that this shift in approaching the idea of the uncanny maybe means we need to challenge some of those assumptions that we have around spirits, temporality and home and place. So, That's my kind of seating you at the foot of this waterfall. But I'm an anthropologist, as Anne has introduced me, and over the last two decades, I've been examining how modern witches approach the past and how histories are always continually being made and remade in the present. And one of the important things I learned was that while a great deal of energy is directed at ensuring historical accounts aligned with the interpretations of realist professional historians, which is also engaged with more analogic ways of engaging with the past through the senses, the emotions, storytelling, myths, rituals, singing. And so in turn, this means that my attention has expanded to include ideas about how magical consciousness and the imagination are understood by practitioners, but also in scholarly circles and how these are taken up in the academy. Modern religious witchcraft is often described as invisible and esoteric and as a highly modern form of spirituality. Contemporary witchcraft falls under the umbrella of modern nature-based polytheistic pagan religions which have been growing in Britain since the 1950s. It's often fashioned as, as what is described as an old religion that remembers spiritual values and the ideals and practices of pagan ancestors and at the same time borrows from new age principles which focus on personal transformation, a kind of modern day esoteric mystery tradition. And alongside that, witches often embrace an animistic cosmology in which a kernel of liveness inhabits all of the natural world, intensified through genius loci or the spirit of place, And opportunities for engagement with other than human entities may bring altered states of consciousness and transformative experiences. Now, this sense of an inspirited landscape doesn't mean the practitioners live in a permanent state of altered consciousness or kind of dwell at the boundaries between the worlds, but it is that they seek maybe opportunities for communication and transformative experiences. But they, they, and they recognize that we're all living Mm. alongside each other. It's also common to hear witches reflect on their first experiences of witchcraft as a homecoming, and that strange ideas and new techniques generate both excitement, but also familiarity. And so those tensions, perhaps, between comfort and discomfort, um, between discovery and familiarity that are uh, readily associated with those ideas of the uncanny, we can find parallels with people who are finding themselves as modern witches. So... I'm going to discuss the waterfall, but also two other sites, so three in total around the Museum of Witchcraft in which this kind of veil between the worlds is seen to be thin and where the landscape is seen to be dynamically animated, where uncanny experiences uh, full of potential may be had. And they are all within a couple of miles of the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boss Castle, a harbour town on the North Cornish coast. I've got a photograph of, um, it's a photograph from, was taken by the current owner of the museum last year. So it's a contemporary photograph. Um, and I've given a, a map of where Cornwall is on kind of the toe of, of um, Britain. Um, and I think for many of us, you know, museums are notoriously enchanted places. But for many visitors to this one, literally so with much potential for numinous experiences in its labyrinthine corridors and its occult collection. It houses artifacts that belong to many 20th and 21st century practitioners of modern witchcraft, as well as a large collection of magic, folk magic, often the working tools of West Country wise women and cunning folk. Cecil Williamson, who founded the museum in the 1950s, introduced the witch with this information. And I quote, the witch's whole life and being is devoted to the ever-present but unseen world of spirit. To the witch, the spirit world is a reality, a living thing. To her, everything has a spirit, a soul, a personality, be it animal, mineral, vegetable. And that is why, to us in the Southwest, we know and believe in the little people. Oh, you may laugh, my fine upcountry folk, but beware, you indeed are in the land where ghoulers and ghosters and long-legged beasts still romp, stomp and go bump in the night. Come, he said, he invites you. Let us show you what the witches and their spirits do. If we take a step back from the museum itself into the harbour town, the precipitous and winding road that leaves from the, you know, the, the, the headland down into Boscastle is described by many as a path into a magical valley. The overhanging trees form a leafy tunnel which prompt esoteric expectations. And these days, Cornwall has a reputation for myth and legend, which you know amplifies and reifies these senses. It's often perceived as marginalized and outside modernity. By the way, that isn't true, but that's another story. But it's part of this, you know, these expectations. So let's have a look at the sites in all. Oops, oh, too eager here. Um so the museum situates itself as I say in this manifestly live landscape. A couple of miles away from the museum is the waterfall at Necton's Glen which I've put a picture of here with a map. Um, It's considered a sacred site following that river travel down to the sea which takes you past Rocky Valley. Another photograph here where hidden behind a ruined mill are two hand-sized labyrinths carved into the slate rock face. Potent occult symbols. In the other direction, behind the town, up on the edge of Minster Churchyard, is a memorial stone to Joan White, photographed here in an autumn visit with with an apple that somebody has left as an offering. Um, She was allegedly a Cornish witch who died in Bodmin Jail in the early 19th century, whose skeleton remains had been displayed in the museum until burial in the woods in 1998, and is considered by many to be an ancestor. So these three sites. With the museum at its centre, form a web. They are uh, maybe material starting points or journeys where witchcraft and the uncanny are interconnected through experiences and drawn out of imaginative, emotional, sensory entanglements with other than human worlds. All three sites have complicated relationships with realist histories. And so it's some of the things that I'm interested in are these kind of interplay between different ways of accessing the past. I'm really just talking about the uncanny today, but I also want to demonstrate maybe some of these um, more complicated stories. So let's go to the waterfall first. So here we here we are looking up at this waterfall again, and there's some photographs of some of the offerings. These are our ribbons hanging from the trees, what are called clotes. And in the river, people pile up um, little slabs, little pebbles and slate. and they're called fairy stacks. Some people could describe them as fairy stacks. Um, so in Necton's Glen, it is claimed that um, it has a long and almost continuous history of sacred pilgrimage since Celtic Cornwall, apparently named after a 5th century saint who allegedly built a hermitage here. The folklore is Kerry Holbrook demonstrates that this is not supported by historical documents, but rather has been reworked through 19th and 20th century desires around the Celtic revival, New Age and pagan sympathies, and romantic views of nature. Nevertheless, for Sarah, the potency of the spirit of place is apparent and embodied, um, and has got nothing to do with the reality or not of historical documentation. She says that regardless of the records, she feels the presence of genius loci here, in embodied and emotional ways she describes swimming through the ki- the ring of the key this you know, is this, this, this basin and there's this naturally formed hole that the water churns through and if you go through it yeah you know, it works as a portal perhaps there is concern um at the the, the ritual litter the offerings here and they have really increased over the last 25 years um six scatterings these days and some things are biodegradable, other things are not. This is a bit of a tangent, I'm afraid. I was looking at the photographs. Um, I remember Sarah and many other people who I visit with, they regret the number of tokens that are placed that are not biodegradable. People leave library cards or bus tickets, you know, plastic jewellery, photographs. It's a whole other subject. I won't um, continue. But I think it's part of this sense of place and that they are concerned. You know, They're kind of people are clogging it up with stuff that shouldn't be there. They should, what's that phrase? They should leave um, nothing but footprints. So to turn to the labyrinth. The labyrinth is a small maze. It's a unicursal maze. So there's just one path that you take. It's not like a maze where you um, have to think about which direction to take. that's deliberately designed to confuse you and perplex you and make the middle a struggle and getting out feel impossible. This is a singular, universal path or that takes you all the way to the inside and all the way back out again. But that process of moving inwards, if it's a large maze, you know, walking, this is hand size, so maybe people are tracing it with their finger. Um, it's a transformative process that takes you inside and all the way back out. And they are often seen as portals um, to other worldly dimensions. And these labyrinths, are accompanied with a, as you can see here again in the photograph, it's um, a very old um, plaque that says that these are these are Rocky Valley rock carvings, a labyrinth pattern, probably of the early Bronze Age. Um, nevertheless, since the nineteen seventies, eighties, I think eighties, researchers have expressed some caution and suggest that they may have been carved instead in the seventeenth century by the serpent cult. Um, A Cornish occult group, and further adding to their appeal is that they were hidden by really dense undergrowth until the mid nineteen fifties, when the valley was cleared and they were the mill, the ruined mill that they're hidden behind, and the labyrinths themselves were revealed. So there are, you know, seem to be a, a, a deeply enchanted place. On our walk that day, Sarah commented that the layers of human attention would wear down the boundaries between the worlds. And she could sense the busy spiritual vitality in this place. And it didn't really matter to her whether or not the labyrinths were ancient. If they'd been put there in the 17th century, it was they were there because the place already had a, a potency um, and by, full of vibrant energies, where that, as I say, that universal path acts as a portal. And she recalls that on her first visit here, it had felt strangely homelike, And she stood in front of these carvings, tracing the labyrinth with her finger. And she felt as though she was going through well-worn, repetitive actions that she had been there before. And my final example is the memorial stone for Joan White, deep in Minster Woods in Boss Castle. This is also a slippery documented history. Yes, there was a skeleton in the museum displayed by Cecil, which he claimed was that of Joan White, imprisoned for assaulting grown men in Bodmin who accused her of witchcraft in the early 19th century, while the establishment on the King marvelled at her improbable strength as a sign of her magical prowess, perhaps. And yes, these bones were buried by the second museum owner, Graham King, in 1998, who later laid this memorial stone close by, On the stone itself, it has has at the top the full, the waxing, and the waning moon, which is a well-known Wiccan witchcraft symbol, set of symbols for the three moons, three stages of the moons, I should say. And underneath it says, Joan White, born 1775, died 1813 in Bodmin Jail, buried 1998. And underneath that it says, no longer abused. And there is a copy, a copy? a replica of this memorial stone, the second stone in the museum with the story of her burial at that time. And Graham King um, talked to many of the local newspapers about putting this body, this skeleton, into the ground as an act of respect. Um, So there's an example here of one of the local newspapers. I think it's the Cornish Guardian. Um, However, There has not yet been any evidence unearthed that Joan White existed, or that any woman was imprisoned for assault at that time in Bodmin, or even died in Bodmin Jail at that time in 1813, or even, I must say, that all the bones constituted a single skeleton. But her story is compelling, and she enjoins an array of documented wise women in the museum galleries. She lives on through pilgrimage, performance, and storytelling while the literal placement of the museum display into the land adds to those sedimented layers of magical histories and altered states of consciousness that perhaps a heightened sensory awareness may offer. She's treated as an ancestor by many practitioners, some of whom claim to have had conversations with her spirit. So, all three of these sites, the Memorial Stone, the Labyrinths at Rocky Valley, the Waterfall at Necton's Glen, are all sites where uncanniness, is seen to come into play. But rather than an intangible, ill-defined feeling, a frightening sense of the familiar momentarily gone awry, it's about expectation. Although the responses are similarly embodied, people talk about goosebumps, hair prickling, stretching their ears, listening for things that they cannot hear, seeing things in their peripheral vision as the known slips out of focus. But rather than fleeing, it marks an anticipated opportunity. It may seem abstract or invisible, but they can find themselves feeling at home in strange and unfamiliar places and waiting to see what opportunities may arise. So, I'm just going to think about the museum. I'll give you a picture of the museum while I think about a little bit more about the uncanny And to pay a bit bit more of attention to that idea of the uncanny as a a concept. I think I just briefly want to remember that it has recently become a popular metaphor to explore those very alienated conditions of late modernity, along with kind of hauntology. And while that's not irrelevant to contemporary witchcraft, this is very highly modern practice, this particular discussion I'm having about these experiences in um, a, a magical landscape Um, an inspirited world, um, is about experience rather than metaphor manifested in this inspirited world. So it's not that kind of conversation really. So to think about the uncanny, let's take those key elements, time slippage, threat to familiarity, fear of unnatural spirits, which are commonly taken for granted as irrational figments of of the imagination, a crisis of the natural and the threat perhaps of the supernatural. Freud, as we probably all know, dominates the field here with his identification of the uncanny as a primal fear, unchanged over human history and expressed through the subconscious. He describes how those repetitions between the familiar and the unfamiliar, what he describes as the Heimlich and the Unheimlich, cause destabilizing effects of being in the world. That hint at supernatural worlds populated by spirits, hidden, dangerous, that haunt the present. According to our 21st century Western conventions, these feelings cannot be literally true and they must be rationalized to fit concrete reality. All of these assumptions are worth addressing. The concept of the uncanny bears some serious consider- historical consideration rather than think of it as unchanged since the earliest times, the scholar royal claims that it is constituted out of enlightenment and romantic philosophies that accentuated logical criteria, emphasized rationality, and created new definitions of the relationship between nature, new definitions of nature themselves, but the relationships between nature and reality, where the imagination became seen as more fictive and more untrustworthy. At the same time, new scientific explanations excluded the inexplicable, and the presence of spirits became impossible in a realist material world. Now, that's quite a kind of a straightforward summary, I think, and there have long been challenges to it, to such straightforward or logical ways of making sense. Um, But out of all of those challenges, um, there have been some really interesting recent discussions of more perhaps sensory and emotional approaches. For example, um, Abraham considers that making sense concerns sensory awareness and sensual awareness rather than the literal truth. And I think that's something important for us to consider when we're thinking about the uncanny here. Historian of philosophy, Hanegra, suggests that the imagination and the senses have been consistently downplayed in histories of Enlightenment philosophers. And together, I think these can help frame ways of thinking about the politics and poetics of uncanniness, perhaps stepping outside of the legacies of European modernity. And there are perhaps other parallels that I only have time to nod to. Recognisable um, indigenous approaches to the uncanny where ancestors, ghosts and spirits will comprise quite ordinary parts of the world. It's important to emphasise that European magical religious witches do not constitute an indigenous group. But some practitioners are motivated by indigenous perspectives on place as inherently sacred. They might follow shamanic approaches predicated on a sense of an underlying root religion Just need to have a drink. so this idea of an underlying root religion is situated in an awareness of the interrelatedness of all things in the world what the anthropologist susan Greenwood describes magical consciousness which she argues has also been marginalized by rationalist Western cultural history. So I think if we bring these things together, those classic definitions and approaches to the uncanny can be challenged. And in this instance, we see them being challenged by those inspirited worldviews taken by modern witches. Instead of a threat posed by unnatural causes to a a rational reality, it marks those potentially potent places in the landscape. Unlike psychological analyses that focus on tensions between the self, memory and experience, here the uncanny might mediate between human and other than human worlds through the imagination, emotions and the senses, things that we need to take seriously. There is a, a bit of a warning, I think, here. An inspirited world is not necessarily benign. Encounters with spirits and other entities are to be approached with caution which is find the effects of the uncanny unsettling. The key is that rather than an irrational response that must be overcome by either fleeing or by logical thinking, it can be faced, alert, and with all senses open. It's not that it becomes safe or even benevolent. Let's think about the museum pictured here. The museum landscape, as I've described, holds these rich possibilities for uncanny encounters through the senses, emotions, materiality of place. Inside the museum, some visitors consider the displays hold live objects held behind glass. I am told it is noisy and full of otherworldly clutter. The atmosphere has been described as thick, pungent. People report being poked, tapped, breathed over, even. Objects turn and move of their own accord. And while some of the objects, especially maybe the curses, they might seem to invite this kind of discomfort um, or perhaps elaborate tools suggest unfamiliar rituals, it is actually the more everyday items that people describe as provoking uncanniness. At the centre of the museum, there is a a witch's cottage, a a kind of a tableau that's set up. Um, And in particular... It's full of domestic items. It's full of brooms, teacups, mirrors and fishing floats that double up as magical tools and fortune telling devices. Rope is used to harness the wind and a pair of glass knitting needles make repetitive practical magic. There are found objects strewn along the galleries. Shells, stone, feathers, for example, all indicate the potential for inherent spirit. So the museum brings the land and the surrounding landscape inside into the collection and sends the collection into the land literally in the case of Joan skeleton and williamson displayed as i have a photograph here of the uh, one of the the displays in the museum of that nearby labyrinth at rocky valley there's a replica still in the museum today and he definitely used it to situate why the museum is located here in this particular language language where did that come from in my head this particular place Williamson claims that three miles away from the spot, you will find this prehistoric maystone carved into the living rock face, proof that from ancient time, man and his magic making with the world of spirit were active in this area. And this is why, he said, the Museum of Witchcraft is located here. One is standing on the edge of the beyond. So on that note, I'd like to just bring some concluding thoughts together. And in doing so, bring to the centre of our attention Royal's suggestion that the uncanny must be contextualised around the reality, around imagination and the senses and the emotions, rather than a primal response. That these three sites offer potential experiences with other worlds. They roughly, perhaps, correspond with distinct elements of uncanniness, an unstable temporality, the presence of spirits, precarious senses of home, familiarity, unfamiliarity, through elements and place. They are encountered in different ways as potent dwelling spaces of spirits of place, or where the borders between the worlds are worn thin, or where ancestral spirits might dwell. All of them bringing these experiences, feelings of familiarity perhaps, provoked through the senses by seeing, listening, hearing, and feeling around the edges of perception. The imagination is not disregarded as fiction here or downplayed as irrational but it works as part of that kind of experiential knowledge the uncanny rather than a trigger to run from supernatural threats is a marker to be alert and on guard aware of potent possibilities so i'd just like to leave you with that thought that in an inspirited world other than humans are perhaps made ordinary rather than supernatural approach with caution but those experiences, those encounters are often welcomed. Thank you.
0: Can give you a little Thank loud.
1: you. Oh, it's Very nice. You can take
0: speech. a bow, curtsy if you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stop no, sharing that was, my screen.
1: Uh,
0: yeah, that was um that was really interesting. Um, so for those who are listening that, you know, you're not on Patreon yet and you're trying to get a feel for, you know, what this is about, um, the museum is so interesting. And I think, you know, for me, I ended up forcing my family to go <laughs> because we were in Cornwall anyway. And I think um, it it's not like I mean, the British Museum is amazing, um, but you need to not think British Museum. You need to think someone's house. And it's like almost like a house within a house because you've got this um, almost like you said, like a replica of, um, you know, which is house so to speak or an imagined idea of what her house would be and I think if you're to imagine yourself going through it's like walking through someone's entry hall and then turning right <laughs> but instead of walking into their kitchen you're walking into a series of almost like posters and then those posters lead into and and it's like a description of you know modern co- perceptions of witchcraft and sort of social media ideas of witchcraft and then it transforms into displays and then from displays it transforms into you know uh british mythology and and british traditions with the green man and the um beautiful beautiful masks and you know horns that you can tell people spent hours putting together and i'll I'll try to put some pictures on instagram so people can see um but there really is an intimate um sort of it's not just—it's not cold. I think that's what I'm trying to say. It's not like uh, when you go into a museum, and you know, most museums, Ashmoly and what have you, where they're beautiful, um, but there's a detachment there between yourself and what's being displayed. But at because I think you, you do feel like you're in somebody's very cozy home. It almost envelops you as if uh, mm-hmm. you're part of you're part of the home now. And so I think that's the thing. I think for, for a lot of people, the idea of going into a museum of witchcraft sounds very scary. Right. And I think they they need to basically if my mom can get through it and be fine, you'll be fine. <laughs> um, because <laughs> there is a coziness to it. And I think it's like if you go into your grandmother's home and then you start rifling through her stuff and you start finding things you probably shouldn't have found, but you're going like, to look through it anyway. Um, you start to realize there's all this cool stuff you didn't know anything about, and because everything's all there, and you feel like you're you're part of the displays because it's just right in front of you, um, it it makes it almost more alive in a way. So even if you don't have this idea that you know these amulets have power, maybe you do think so, maybe maybe you don't. The point is um, you can see how you know, things like a lucky rabbit's foot, you start to make connections, like, you know, a lucky rabbit's foot for some person might be quite important. Well, this is just another version of that for somebody else. And maybe maybe it was sentimental. Maybe it, it was something that they treasured. Uh, and so I think uh, when you're talking about this idea of of the museum as a homecoming, I can completely understand why people feel... So welcomed there, I
1: think. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? It is amazing how many people do say this. And mm-hmm. there's a, um, a museologist, Fiona Canlin, who writes about the Museum of Witchcraft in her uh, work on, on small museums, small unfunded museums, because they have no public funding if you are a, kind of a privately owned collection museum. Um, and she writes how even the most sort of skeptical visitor. By the end of their their walk around, uh, usually gets a bit enchanted by the stories, by the offerings, by the things on display.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it made me want to get a wand at the end of it. I think there even is a place you can get little tree kits. But it's, it is, um, you know, it's like a place where I think, oh, I'd love to take my daughter there. Like she'd just she'd have a blast. She'd just think this was like the coolest. She'd want to touch everything. I wouldn't let her. But she'd she'd think it was it was fantastic because it sparks that sort of childlike imagination, which I think is so crucial to, um, you know, tapping into that imaginative side of yourself. Uh, Which sort of leads me to one of the questions I was thinking about while you were doing your talk, is this idea of, you know, history and imagination. And um, I'd like to know from your perspective, and it's not to sound naive, it's, it's a genuine question, but how would you say British wishes Which is, in a general sense, distinguish between truth, quote unquote, and fiction. Also in brackets. Well, I don't think
1: that um, I don't think that people distinguish. I don't think which is distinguish between truth, history, fiction, any differently than anybody else. But I think maybe where the nuanced nuance difference is is the the value that they put on different forms of 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 information. Okay, so Um, like evidence, for example. Yeah. So if um if you're standing at the foot of the waterfall, for example, or in front of the labyrinth, and you feel in your body that there are um that this is an inspirited place, that there are live um spirits of place who dwell there, then rather than thinking, oh, I need to rationalise that because they don't exist, or um that's just like a story that I'll tell myself then it's something that you would take um, at face value for itself as an experience. But it doesn't mean that you think it's the same kind of knowledge as the, um, as the paper records in the archive. Um, but it might mean that you, you just take them as seriously, but for, as a different form of knowledge, but not to be disregarded. It's not that the paper records are this important and your imagination is unimportant. But you need to to kind of navigate these different, and I think we all do this to a certain extent. But um, what some of the writers like Hanegra or or Ryle suggest is that those ideas of the imagination, where we think it's unimportant, we think it's fictional, and so it doesn't matter, that those are part of a a sort of an enlightenment, rationalist set of intellectual skills. And that that is what means that we privilege something that we think can be tested over something that we think can't be tested rather than, you know, so that there's different evaluations. Does that
0: help? Yeah. So would you say it's kind of like having a spidey sense? Like, you know, a spidey sense? I call it spidey sense, like women's intuition. So let's say, let's say you're on a date and you meet this guy and you're like, "Mm, something's not sitting right. And you don't have any proof. But you're like, he's wigging me out. And I, oh. I bet he's KJ. I bet he's got something up his sleeve. But you have no proof. There's no books that's been written about it. You can't find anything. He seems like, you know, on Facebook, he looks like a super great guy. And then and then you come to find out he's as you thought. Okay. Just, if not worse. Just a bit right? dodgy. Yeah. 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 And uh, would you say it's kind of like that? It's like, don't ignore that intuition.
1: I think that sounds like a really, really useful um, parallel. Yes, yeah. Because mm. I think we all have something that are drawn about through that. Feeling. Yeah, yeah. Where it could be good or
0: bad. Where you're like, mm. you know, they say don't, don't ignore your gut, your gut feeling,
1: right? And we have to remember, I think, how much things that we see as rationalist forms of knowledge are also, at the same time, highly imaginative. Yeah, mm. you can't do scientific inventions or you know discoveries or. Um, or um, you know, engineering inventions or something without having a really powerful imagination, you are bringing into reality things mm. that don't exist.
0: Interesting.
1: Um, so, or that don't exist in ways that you can see them. Or what was the name of the person? I can't remember his name. Who who used the microscope to draw the flea, bringing things that are smaller than the human eye. Not smaller mm. than the human eye? I'm mean, not making any sense. Um, no, you're making perfect sense to me. But then again, it's, Brian, so. <laughs> it's a hot day. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, no, I think that, that that's a really good point. Um, I was going to say, so those carvings, another okay. really good example. So I, when I you sent me your talk, and I was looking through the PowerPoint, and and they were saying all oh, these, these carvings are a million years old. And I'm like, I look pretty fresh, but. I thought it was really interesting what your friend Sarah had in response to that. You know, it's like, yes, it's probably not created in 1400 BC,
1: <laughs> but
0: that doesn't mean that. Uh, firstly, I wanted to find out about Serpent Cult, let's be honest. Um, well, maybe I do have another podcast on them. But um, the idea that there was obviously something about the place that made them want to do that. I thought was a really interesting way of sort of justifying the inaccuracy behind the plaque. And I was wondering if you could kind of dive into that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think it is. Um, I do think it is overlaid for many people with the knowledge that it was hidden for a long time. Mm. And I was reading some, I was trying to find some um some accounts of walking through Rocky Valley, walking up to Necton's Glen in the 19th century, early 20th century, when you know, loads of folklorists were roaming Cornwall and Devon and, and looking for, for myths and legends. And, um, and the, the only thing I could find, or well, pretty much the only thing I could find, there was a few accounts of um, Necton's Glen. But pretty much there was just, I think it was Wilkie Collins who wrote a book about the railway in Cornwall and his walking and he said he went in search of Necton's Glen but he couldn't find it because the woods were so thick and he didn't even, he just said you could see Rocky Valley in the distance but you would not have been able to break through. It sounded like some mm. kind of um, what's that fairy tale? Uh, um, I mean, I'm thinking of the secret garden but <laughs> no, I'm thinking <laughs> what, the, the castle with the oh Brian. like a sleeping beauty like a sleeping beauty yes yeah. but, um and then in the 1950s it becomes revealed and the path is 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 opened out and so yeah i do think this idea that there is that, that this place has historic has been historically important which is why they are there um is perhaps another dimension of, of what you're calling the intuition that gut mm. feeling that imagination that how do you how do you make different connections to the past that you can't authenticate. Yeah. But you can I mean, do those through that, that sense.
0: Yeah, because I can remember so um I know some friends of mine that happen to be um British witches practitioners. And I can remember them telling me that they thought there was a group that lived not too far from us. And they said that they and I won't I won't name the town or anything like that. But uh the point is they had gotten off the train and they felt like there was something and they couldn't pinpoint wasn't a ghost to promise it was the wind. <laughs> um, But anyway, point is, they felt like there was something there. And I think it kind of gets back into this whole thing about, you know, feeling and recognizing feeling. And, you know, even though, you know, the skeptic in me is going to be like, you know, maybe, maybe not, you know, you don't have any proof behind it, but. I think it's interesting that there's always going to be that sort of recognition of like let's not completely dismiss it until until we know for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in a weird sort of way, sort of complements the skeptic idea of you know I need to get all the evidence before I come to a conclusion. So I think that I don't know that in some way it kind of you can kind of bridge that gap in a way.
1: Yeah. Yes, I think so. I think it is to do with. We, I think bridging is a useful way of thinking about it. I'm certainly not suggesting that um, all knowledge or all forms of evidence have the same um, have the same. You know, ha- we, uh, can be used to do the same things, um, perhaps, um, or that they carry the same weight in all sets of circumstances we all i think we always need to evaluate don't we what what kind of information we have at any given time and what we're going to use it for
0: i gotta say that's it from us at coffee and cocktails with your host dr ann wand i'd like to thank helen again for her wonderful and fascinating talk this afternoon if you enjoyed listening to the show make sure to like subscribe and if you're listening on youtube ring that bell also, consider becoming a patron, if I haven't said it already. It's support from our followers that really help us to keep the show going. Also, if there's any future topics that you would like us to discuss, feel free to write us directly at coffeeandcocktailspodcast.com. Other well, that, that's it for now. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.